0: A little something to make you happy you didn't go anywhere this weekend, right? Yeah. Thank you, Clinton Collins. And thanks, Michael, for... Turn around, I thought maybe you were going to speak. It'll be fun. No? Thanks for bringing us great music every single weekend here at Westridge. A uh, little-known fact, if you trace Clinton Collins... Family line and you trace Phil Collins. Family line? There's actually no connection. Um, just wanted to share that with you. If you don't get anything else out of the message this morning, you got that to go with. Um, so you can go to sleep now, some of you. Uh, we're gonna kick off a new series this morning, uh, called Hunger for More. Uh, and it's gonna carry us all the way into Labor Day weekend, which sounds really far away. And I'm grateful for that, right? We got a lot of summer stuff left to do a lot of summer to enjoy. But this series is going to go all through the summer. And in the series, we're going to look at a question that I think all of us ask at various points in our walk with God. It's a question that I think once it gets a hold of you, you can't let it go and it won't let you go. It comes to us sometimes when we're in tough times and we just don't feel a connection with God. We may not be able to figure out why we don't feel that connection. We just don't feel it. And we're going through a tough time. Oddly enough, it can also come when we feel close to God. And we'll ask the very same question. Here's the question. How can I get more of God in my life? that hunger. Curiously, the answer to that question in both of those times has been hidden in plain sight for almost 2,000 years. It comes from the Apostle Peter, a very simple, ordinary fisherman who walked with Jesus while he was on this earth for more than three years. And those three years radically changed his life. Out of that experience, he wrote two very short letters in the New Testament. Those letters are largely overlooked by people who read the Bible, people who are teaching pastors like me. And that's a shame. They get eclipsed by the Gospels. They get eclipsed by Paul's huge volume of work in the New Testament. But in his letters, specifically in the second one, in the very beginning of that letter, he writes about seven old things that can make our life new. He writes about seven virtues. (laughs) And when I say that word, it immediately causes two reactions within me. The first reaction is this internal reaction just to the word virtue. It feels like a very old word, doesn't it? It feels like a word my grandmother used, and we've just stopped using a long time ago. It feels like a word that may not even fit in our Westridge culture, virtue, you know? Why would we use it? It's just not friendly around here. It instantly brings up images of the Victorian era, you know? Like something they'd use on Downton Abbey, maybe. And it's just not fit for here. We should see it on PBS. It brings an image of a long list of things that I should and shouldn't do in my life if I'm going to practice a virtue. All kinds of negative images. But if you go back and you really study the history of the word, early church eras, and not even that long ago, it's a pretty cool word. People used to practice virtues in the same way that this generation talks about going to the gym. Yes, I said talks about going to the gym. Virtue was key to how Christians shaped their character. It's how people would learn to serve rather than manipulate in their relationships. Virtue was how people would learn to be gentle rather than abrupt in conversations. Practicing virtue is how people changed in their life and grew to be more like Jesus. And so just by way of honest confession, maybe you're like me, I'm going to have to work against my natural internal reaction to the word virtue as we go through this series and we look at each one of these virtues. My second reaction is less of a reaction to the word, and it's more of a reaction of tying the word virtue to Peter and his life. So what we learn about Peter in the Gospels tells me that he probably would be the last person that we would suspect to write about virtue, okay? Because in his life, as we learn in the Gospels, he's really impetuous. He's kind of the first one to step out there and say something, and he usually puts his foot in his mouth. When he takes an action, it's usually the wrong action first most of the time. So how did Jesus take this man who, when Jesus first met him, showed very little evidence of these virtues we're going to talk about in his own life and not only inspire him to write about these virtues, but change him so that he lived them. Got lots of questions. So we're going to dig not only into the virtues, we're going to dig into Peter's life, we're going to dig into his writing, and truthfully, we're just going to look at the first nine verses out of this letter between now and labor day we're going to dig deep into them and that's going to be different because i there aren't a lot of people who teach on second peter chapter one verses one through nine it's rare to hear a message it's rare to hear a series on this and i think that's a shame because these verses are stunning in their combination of simplicity and audacity They promise us the whole world and more besides. They reveal to us the secret of more, more purpose, more passion, more of God in our lives. So let's dive in. Peter writes this. He writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped corruption in the world caused by evil Desires. I'm going to stop there because I love this greeting. There's so much packed into this greeting, these first four verses. Peter boldly declares that everything we need for life, everything we need to be godly, we already have. We don't need anything else. We don't need a flat washer. We don't need a cotter pin. We don't need a widget or a thingamajig or a doohickey to make our life better we don't need to search for something on amazon some resource some book some latest we've got everything we need to live the life that god has called us to to be abundant and flourishing in our life with god and if you can follow peter's logic it's amazing he says we know jesus And the original word there in Greek doesn't mean a head knowledge. It's not about information. He says, we know him in a relational way. We know him like you know your best friend. We know him better than you know your spouse after you've been married 50 years. This is an intimate knowing of Jesus that we have because of our relationship with him. And because we know him, because we have that relationship, Peter says, God's power resides in us. And it gives us everything that we need to live a godly life. And because we have that power, it helps us take on Jesus' character. It helps us be like him. And because we have that character, we're able to break the destructive patterns of sin In our life. Those verses describe the beautiful gift that is given to us. At the moment we say, I accept that gift of grace. At the moment we decide to follow Jesus. He's given us everything that we need to live the life he's called us to. But there's a catch. (laughs) Usually is, right? Peter goes on to say, We've been given everything. We've been given a wonderful gift, but there's some assembly required. I hate those words, right? Don't you? Some assembly required. Anytime I see those words on any kind of packaging, I have one very crystal clear image in my mind. When our kids were preschoolers, we bought them their very first swing set. You're laughing. You ever assemb- How many of you have ever assembled a swing set for your kids or your grandkids? How many of you at that point swore you'd never assemble another one? <coughs> we bought our kids their very first swing set, put it in the car, hauled it home, dumped the boxes on the garage floor, unpacked everything, sorted it out, because I'm a bit OCD, sorted it out. Once we had everything sorted out on the garage floor, I pulled the instructions out of the box and started to read. They, I remember them to this day, almost 30 years later, because they were the best instructions I've ever read. Uh, No lie. Well, and maybe because I never read the instructions. Um, But here's what they said. Said, congratulations, you have bought the best swing set on the market for your kids. A little bragging on their part, but okay, I can take that. If you're standing in your garage, check. Staring at the parts scattered on your garage floor, check. Know this. This swing set took one of our expert technicians between eight... In 10 hours to assemble. Oh no. Know this as well you are most likely not one of our expert and skilled technicians. Check. We also would guess, as you're reading these instructions, that your children are staring over your shoulder. <laughs> I started laughing because they were asking you, Dad, Mom, How soon will the swing set be ready? (laughs) And they were. Our suggestion to you is to turn and tell your kids, I don't know, probably tomorrow sometime. (laughs) So I just started laughing and I went, this is going to be great. If the rest of the instructions sound like this, this is going to be fun. I turned and looked at the kids because they were asking, Dad, when will it be ready? Dad, when will it be ready? Dad, when will it be ready? And I turned and said, I don't know, probably sometime tomorrow. And it was. I mean, it took the rest of that day and part of the next day to get it assembled. Because we had not settled for the economy, we got the super deluxe model with everything that they could possibly cut or break or damage themselves on. It was sometime the next day. It took about 12 to 14 hours to put it together. And they were thrilled. Here's what Peter's saying in this next section that we're going to read in just a minute. If we're sitting around going, when am I going to be mature? When am I going to get more of God in my life? What Peter's about to say is this. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. It's not going to happen overnight. Some assembly is required as you apply these virtues to your life. Listen to what he says. For this very reason, because of the gift we've been given, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. There's those seven virtues. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever doesn't have them is nearsighted and blind. Uh, Let me just stop. Nearsighted and blind seems like it's redundant, right? I mean, if you're blind, you really don't need somebody to tell you you're nearsighted. It's actually two separate things. Nearsighted there means you've intentionally shut your eyes, even though you can see. You've closed your eyes. You're rejecting the opportunity to see. And blind. Two separate things. Whoever doesn't have these qualities in their life is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Peter makes it clear there's some work we have to do once we have a faith, once we've received this initial gift from God. And I think it's interesting that he would even say that. You have everything you need, now you need to add something. Kind of seems contradictory, doesn't it? Peter's just simply making the point that because we've been given everything doesn't give us the space to sit back and do nothing. We have a part to play in our growth. We have a part to play in the development, in the maturing of our faith. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, says this, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. He's not saying, We have to earn our salvation. That's a free gift. Peter says we have to begin building on the basic foundation of our faith. So as we look at these seven virtues, we're to make every effort to grow our faith by applying these virtues to our life. Now until this week, I always looked at these virtues as kind of a sequential list. It kind of reads that way in english somehow i'm supposed to start on being good right that's the beginning of the list and i'm working on goodness until i get that perfected and then i somehow that's going to help me work on knowledge so i've been a christian for over 40 years i still don't have goodness down so i can't move on to knowledge if you need any verification that i don't have goodness down my wife will be in the lobby after the service you can just ask her So it doesn't make sense as a sequential list. In fact, the literary style that Peter's using here makes this a random list. We can work on any of them. We can work on all of them. We can work on some of them. Whatever helps us in adding to our faith. In fact, if you're sitting here and you look at this list and you go, I have a friend who needs to work on this. My spouse, my significant other. I see that they need to work on one of these. You could text them right now. I see some of you nodding and going, yeah, I see that. You could text them. That actually would be quite helpful because then your spouse, your significant other, your best friend would know that immediately in this list, you need to work on self-control. You need to work on mutual affection. They would immediately help identify it for you. Working on these virtues won't make us perfect, though. It'll grow our faith But we won't be perfect this side of heaven. Peter's just saying, a true faith is going to lead us further, deeper in our relationship with God. We're going to want to grow. These virtues are going to make us more like Christ. They're going to help us be more productive, more effective in our faith. It's interesting, the early church fathers, when they looked at this list in 1 Peter, they gave them the name Capital Virtues. That's what they referred to these seven as. And over time, they began to realize that there were some sins that we all struggle with. The dark side of these virtues, if you will. They were their counterpart. And they recognized that for each of us, we probably struggled with one of those seven more than we did any other so it seemed like to the early church fathers each one of us had one of those sins that was always chasing us as we pursue a deeper faith some dark appetite in our life some wild card emotion that's there for each one of us and as we walk along in our faith with god we find a way to manage it to deny it, to justify it, but it always seems to be lying in wait for us. We know it offends a holy God, but it's just there waiting to trip us up. And as we grow in our relationship with God, we reach a point where we just wish God would just reach down from heaven while we're sleeping and just pluck it out of our life that thing that's constantly plaguing us. So we wake up and we'd be whole, we'd be mature, we'd be complete. And it doesn't happen. So as the years go by, we just seem to make our home with our demons and hope nobody finds out. writings all the way back to the 6th century about this struggle with these demons that plague us. The church fathers gave specific names to those chronic struggles. Instead of the seven capital virtues, they called them the seven deadly sins. And they line up. Pride, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony, anger, lust. And the truth is that each one of them isn't simply a sin in itself. But they become the root cause of other sins in our life. Greed, for example. If we just pick that one out of the list. Leads to other sins in our life. Greed can lead us to stealing. Lying. It can lead to injustice. It can lead to addictions in our life. Greed is a breeding ground for a lot of other sins. And if you take each one of the others and you think deeply about it, it, it has the same path to other sins in our life. And since the 6th century, this concept of the seven deadly sins has proven to be an explanation for a lot of the trouble we get ourselves in, individually and collectively. It's an explanation for things like wars and genocides, for personal things like spouse abuse and check fraud. And while the concept isn't strictly biblical, it stems from solid biblical principles. The Bible is really clear that we will struggle with sin every day of our lives. It demands, this struggle demands daily vigilance from us. Because we'll never arrive at a place, never we'll arrive at a place in our lives where sin doesn't pose a threat to us in our growth and in our relationship with God. If we crush the head of one sin, we seem to master one sin in our life, it just seems like there's another one that slithers out behind a wall and tempts us. And while the Bible's honest about that struggle, it's also honest about a greater story about the story of the grace we have received, about what God has done and still does to get us out of trouble, that God's ambition in our lives is to take his people who've been held captive by evil and been ruined by sin and transform them into the likeness of Jesus. But I think every one of us has pretty much reached the point in our lives that we know that that transformation isn't going to take place just by trying harder. (laughs) We're not going to break bad habits. We're not going to break those ingrained patterns in our life just by trying harder. That's kind of like getting your car stuck in the mud and just pressing the accelerator harder. You're just going to spin the wheel deeper into the mud. That's all trying harder does for us. Trying harder just entrenches us deeper in the very act we're trying to avoid. That's why any effort at spiritual growth, apart from these virtues, is incomplete. In fact, it's more than likely detrimental to our growth. These virtues are what help sculpt our future. They help sculpt a deeper walk. With God, they help put help us put on the character of Jesus Jesus, and they lead to real and lasting change in our life. And just like the seven deadly sins, once we begin to put them on, they spawn all kinds of other things in our life. Think about mutual affection, or as some translations call it brotherly kindness. When we put that trait on it's good just by itself, but it begins to spawn all kinds of other things in our character, all kinds of other qualities. Once it's deeply embedded, it begins to produce more forgiveness, more humility. It enriches our friendships. It causes us to serve people in ways we've never served before. And ultimately, mutual affection can begin to erase envy, that deadly sin in our life. So, as we wrap up this morning, let me just ask you to look at these virtues one more time. And let me ask you to think seriously about where you are hungry for more of God in your life. Do you want more goodness? Are you ready in your life to be a kinder, gentler person? Do you want more knowledge? And I'm not talking about facts, as I said before. Do you want more knowledge of Jesus? Do you want to know him? A deeper relationship. Do you want to know him like you know your best friends? Are you hungry for more self-control? So that you don't squander energy and influence in your life. Through self-indulgence. How about perseverance? Is that a hunger in you? So that all those opportunities in your life you stick with? You don't have setbacks that defeat you? You don't quit too soon? Or maybe there's a deep-seated longing to grow in godliness, to begin in everyday, ordinary ways to reflect the character of Christ. mutual affection? Do you want to grow in that? Is there a hunger to simply love the things that God loves? Or to love is the last virtue. To love in the way that God loves. It's an impressive list. Is there anything on there that you want more of in your life? Anything on there that you want to add on to your faith, to build on that solid foundation of faith. If so, we have some choices ahead of us as we look at this this summer. Peter says we have a choice to make. Will we put forth the effort to satisfy that deep hunger in our souls, the hunger for more of God? Will we put the effort out there? Will we put forth the effort to satisfy the hunger for a deeper life with God? If we'll do that, if we'll choose to partner with God to add to our faith, then we will be able to shape a different kind of life with God than we've ever experienced before.